0: Not the donkey or the elephant. This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over tribe. Do you?
1: If you've been listening to Truth Over Tribe, you probably have put together the fact that both Keith and I are readers. After all, we interview a lot of authors, we talk about a lot of books, and we've been readers for a long time. And so this episode is about one of our passions, perhaps our only real hobby, which is not working, it's reading and doing a lot of it. So Keith, I want to start with this, and we'll talk about where the episode's going in just a second, but I just want to start with you. Do you really read all the books of the people you interview?
0: It's funny that you ask that because you're not the first person to ask me That question. I'm sure other people have asked you that question, which is, of course, why you're asking me. And the answer is absolutely, uh, sometimes twice. I can't imagine having a conversation with an author about something that they'd written and not having read it, and yet I listen to podcasts, good podcasts that I like, to be frank, and somehow they don't read it. We're not that smart. That's it our problem. It drives <laughs> me crazy when I can tell that the host hasn't read the book he's talking with the author about, and I wonder, why is the author here? I guess just to sell books, but you can't have an intelligent conversation, in my opinion. Yeah, so I mean, pretty consistently,
1: we will get emails from publishers or authors saying, hey, can I come onto your show? And I think in my head, you're expecting that I don't actually read these books, or else you might not be asking me to take the time to read it? You think I'm just going to show up for an interview? So I have to look at the book and say, am I even interested in reading this? Because after reading it, I might decide I'm not even going to interview you. But we do take it seriously. I would feel weird personally about interviewing someone whose book I didn't read.
0: And one of the ways the authors get their new books to you is through what's called an ARC, an advanced reader copy. And it's always a print edition of that. And you and I read most of our books, maybe almost all, not quite all, but almost all through either Kindles or Audible. And so I don't really have a space in my life, and we can get to this later when we talk about our habits, but I don't really have a space to read a hard copy unless it's something I really, really, (laughs) really want to read.
1: Yeah, yeah, I feel the exact same way. Okay, you've never answered this question for me before. How many books do you think you read a year? Oh, I'm not going to answer that question.
0: (laughs) Because I hate it when people ask me Over or under
1: 100. Oh, definitely over. Yeah, see, okay, we'll leave it there. We'll <laughs> leave it there. Definitely over. But
0: I think— See, reading- well, I,
1: I, well, I need to pause for a second. Okay. I get called private school Patrick. Do you want to know which of the two of us reads more books? Oh, you probably read— It's it. public school You key- probably
0: read more. I no. might have pictures in them. No, I yes. picture books.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I promise I don't. I hover usually between 90 and 100 books a year. That's kind of my number, and oh, I really? know you go over that.
0: Yes, I go over that, but again, we can get to this later, but— I don't think every book should be read the same way. And so I'm not pretending that I read every book in a way that I could tell you everything about that book when I'm finished or six months later. So that's one reason I'm just hesitant to say how many books I read, because I don't want people to have the wrong conclusion. I get that. So let me stop and say while we're talking about reading.
1: It's not just a passion for the two of us. You may not realize it, but I would guess almost everybody listening to this has an intuition that Americans are reading less today than they have read in the past. And there have been polls that have been done over the past few decades that show that is absolutely correct. We are slowly reading less and less books over time. In fact, the most recent Gallup study found that the current median for American adults is five books. So what that means is that about half of the American population reads less than five books a year, and about half of the population reads more than five books a year, and that is less than it has been historically. So, on the one hand, this means that people are still reading, right? It's not though we've given up reading books, but it does seem as though people are not readers. We are reading less. Reading has become less a part of our everyday life. So that's gonna be a little bit of what we're discussing this episode. Towards the end, we'll circle back and talk about how you can become a reader, just thinking about our own experience. But before we go there, like we always do, we kind of want to do a little bit of a cultural analysis and ask maybe why are we reading less what are the consequences of reading less what's this mean for the church how we disciple people how we evangelize do we need to change that in a culture that is increasingly less reader focused
0: well and i guess some of you are wondering is it a big deal that people are reading less is this something that we should be really concerned about or is it just part of the transition of a modern culture and different ways to take in communication And I think it probably does matter that we are not as big of readers as we used to be. Let's start with a couple of just kind of definitional questions. Like, what is the literacy rate in the United States? And defined literacy just means the ability to read, write, and some people throw in speak in that definition as well. But the U.S. Department of Education said in 2021 that about 80% of Americans have English literacy skills, the kind of skills that you need to basically make it through life. Now, you have to remember that some adults have English as their second language. So of that 20% that doesn't have English literacy skills, they might have literacy skills in their own native language.
1: Yeah. So we're going to be focusing on English literacy because that's our context in America. And that's just where we can find some statistics to discuss it. But moving on from general literacy, and I have to say, I don't know if you thought this, that number, 79% of America having basic English
0: literacy skills, that was lower
1: than I expected. Did that surprise you?
0: It does surprise me a lot. I mean, I get the immigrant thing that some portion of that 20% has it in their own native language, but even the people that I meet in cities as we travel who don't speak English as their first language, they seem to have basic English skills that they're competent enough in the English language to kind of get around and do their stuff.
1: That's actually helpful because we do need to focus on what we mean by literacy skills. So this is not just I can read some basic English words or I can read English signs. For example, I'm driving around and you'd read that says stop or that says this street. Now, when we're saying English literacy, it means sufficient skill to complete tasks that require comparing and contrasting information, paraphrasing information, or making low-level inferences. That's what we're talking about. Like
0: what grade would this be? Like sixth grade sixth reading? Sixth grade
1: is usually the mark that you're looking for.
0: Okay. So, well, I can understand. Then the 80% doesn't seem too out of balance okay. to me at that point. Okay, so moving forward, though, it's helpful
1: for me to ask the question, when we start talking about the consequences of decreasing reading, Of it might not be decreasing literacy, but reading less, is to compare oral cultures
0: and literate cultures. And is this because you think we're becoming more of an oral culture? Well,
1: okay, that's a great question, because initially as I started seeing the decline of literacy in the United States, and particularly reading in the United States, my first thought was, oh, we're becoming an oral culture culture again. We're kind of regressing back to what most humans have been for most of history. And I want to problematize that later because I don't think that's correct, but it's a helpful place to start is just looking at the differences.
0: But hang on a second. So this would be like we get information through podcasts or through audiobooks yes. or through TikTok or other ways that we take in information that are oral, not written. And you're saying that just because we get information audibly doesn't mean that we're becoming an oral culture.
1: Exactly. There are certain things that kind of define what an oral culture is, and it doesn't entirely have overlap with what we're experiencing today, but you also said something else that's key here. When we're talking about orality, which would be a oral culture, or a literacy, which would be a literate culture, we're talking about how people intake information, how people learn, what are the normal modes by which they're learning and consuming info. Okay, so let's talk about oral cultures for a second. So our entire Bible was actually written within oral cultures. These were not literate cultures. Not only were most people not literate, but the way that information was passed and learned was largely via people either reading text or hearing
0: text? So the prophets wrote down their communication and those were on scrolls. And then that information was passed orally from one group to another. In other words, they couldn't mass produce those scrolls. So people became very good at memorizing in order to know what was on that text.
1: Yeah. I mean, we have to remember this is pre-printing press. And so scrolls were incredibly expensive. And so you couldn't have your own Bible <laughs> at your house <laughs> to wake up in the morning and read. And By the way, many people could not read, and so the way in which most people heard the Scripture was by, well, we see Jesus do this in Luke 4. He comes into the synagogue, they bring out this big cart of scrolls, he pulls out the scroll of Isaiah, he rolls it to the right place, and then he starts reading from it and interpreting it. But that would have been the normal way. I mean, obviously Jesus was literate because he was reading, but that would have been the normal way that most people heard scriptural information, was going to the synagogue and hearing the Scriptures read to them.
0: It even makes me think that for Christians, the idea of daily Bible reading is really new. Like when I became a Christian, that was kind of the standard if you were serious about your faith is did you read your Bible every day? And you know, you have the daily reading plans that take you through the Bible in a year, and By the way, I'm pro-reading your Bible as often as possible. (laughs) Read it twice a day, I don't care. But it's a relatively new concept because people did not even have their own personal Bibles.
1: In fact, it's not just a new concept, it's an individualized concept. That's the part that really interests me. You probably could have gone to your synagogue multiple days a week to hear the scriptures read. And so you could have been in the Bible every single day, but there's a key difference. I'm listening to it with my neighbor. I'm listening to it with my spouse and my children. And so now, all of a sudden, these passages that are about... how we live together collectively, they take on a new meaning, because it's not me by myself individualizing the application, it's me looking at the neighbor who I just, you know, lost my cool with (laughs) a week ago and yelled at, or me sitting, you know, across from that family member whose ox I stole last week. That's the context in which I'm hearing scripture, and that changes the way that you're interpreting it.
0: So we've said before that if you take somebody in the modern West and have them read the parable of the prodigal son, they are likely to skip over that there was a famine. It just doesn't register on their mind because they're not familiar with famines. But if you go to somebody in the Middle East, especially in the first century, that's something that really stands out to them both back then and even today, because they're familiar with it. So when you're reading all those one another passages and you're sitting in your community, well, those one another passages stand out in a way that they probably don't for us as individualists reading our Bible on our own. It's a helpful context
1: when we're reading the Bible to imagine the Bible read in that way. But there's another key here, which is that Oral cultures tend to emphasize memory. Stop and think. If you don't have pen and paper, let's say you don't know how to write, or even if you do know how to write, paper is so expensive, you're probably not writing things out. You had to memorize everything. If you were a merchant, you were having to memorize, you know, how many pounds of wheat do I owe this person and how much money do they owe me? You were constantly having to memorize information. And mm. research has shown that memory is a muscle. The more you use it, the better you get at it. And in fact, throughout the Bible, this is true the Old and New Testament, the writers have clearly written the text in a way that is designed to be memorized.
0: Is this like the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say to you, and so it's kind of broken up in ways that help us remember of what the new section is going to be about. Yeah,
1: and so that's a great example. Parallelism, where you use the same structure multiple times. So Jesus says multiple times, you have heard it said, but I say
0: to or you. Or the Psalms have the acrostic, right? Where they'll go through maybe the whole alphabet, Psalm 119, right? And so you know what comes next because the next line begins with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet.
1: Yeah, there's things like mnemonic devices. In English, we have rhyming. There wasn't as much rhyming back then. You can use things like rhythm. All of these help facilitate memory. In fact, when you read the Old Testament to a modern reader, it can sound repetitive because... Most senses, I don't know if this is exactly correct, but a vast majority begin with the Hebrew word and or vav. There's just a single letter for it. And speaking in that way is a memory device. It helps create a rhythm to what you're reading so that you're able to memorize it. And it's actually kind of wild. If anybody here is a fan of Sherlock Holmes, one of the things Sherlock Holmes is famous for, at least in the modern editions of it, is he uses something called the Mind Palace. Don't you use this? I've used it in the past. I've ceased using
0: it since then. Oh, really? You tried to tell me it worked. It did while I was
1: using it, and then I stopped using it. Memory is a must. So that,
0: I didn't know Sherlock Holmes used this.
1: Yeah, so this is in the Benedict Cumberbatch version that was popular maybe five years ago. He talked about his mind palace. And so this is actually a strategy. What you do is you imagine a place that you know really well. Maybe it's a walk that you take every day. Maybe it's your house. And as you imagine that, you store information in different places, <laughs> which sounds weird. So like in my mind palace, it was my kitchen. So I would imagine, you know, an image stored inside of my washing machine, another one inside of the dryer, something inside of the refrigerator. That's in
0: kitchen? The washing machine and the dryer? Uh,
1: sorry, they're all, well, yes, they're in a <laughs> room connected to the kitchen. That was confusing. Now Think about it. And as it turns out, this is an ancient memory technique that we know rabbis actually use to help their students memorize the scripture. And so while it's probably not true that every ancient Jew had the whole Old Testament memorized, probably a good chance they had the Psalms memorized, probably a good chance they had large portions of the Torah memorized, probably a good chance they had lots of Daniel and Isaiah memorized, some of the greatest hits, we might say. And because they had such strong memories, this wasn't a massive task. So again, this is part of an oral culture. Memory is part and parcel of how you learn and how you retain information.
0: So that makes it sound like that people memorize it and they passed it down from one person to the next, kind of like the telephone game. And oftentimes people accuse Christians of putting too much weight into the scriptures when we don't really have the originals and all we have is some version that came out at the end of a very long game of telephone. And if you ever played that game, you know what comes out at the end is not exactly <laughs> what started at the beginning.
1: Yeah, so that's a common misconception. Reception. Anyways, here's the point. The idea that information was passed down through a telephone game actually comes from how stories were passed along in Germanic areas. And so they were looking kind of in the you know late medieval, early modern era, how were these stories passed along in those communities? And it did kind of end up looking like telephone games. However, that's not how it works in every single community. There's variations in oral cultures of how information is passed. So let's go to Hebrew culture. And there's other cultures today that look like this. Two things. Thing number one, there were scrolls. So there's always something to compare your notes to. But what's interesting is you can find other oral cultures where when you have a group of people together and someone's standing up and telling the story that everybody knows, when someone makes a mistake... The entire group steps in and says, nope, (laughs) you got it wrong. (laughs) You made errors. And what we know of rabbinic tradition is that that would have been the norm back in Jesus' day. You're not going to mess with what Isaiah says. Someone's going to step in and correct you and say, no, you got that particular part wrong. And so, again, there's variations of oral cultures. One last thing here. It's not just that they use their memory. It's also the fact that memory is limiting. In other words, when you have to store most of your information via memory, there's always going to be picking and choosing of what you take in and what you don't because there is limited space inside of the brain. And so oral cultures tend to be more choosy about the kinds of information that they're going to pass on. I want us to move on from talking about purely oral cultures here in just a second, but I want to say one last time, remember, this was the context of the old and new Testament. We see it throughout the Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah and Moses, all of them, there are points in which they are doing this oral reading of the scripture thing to their communities where someone is standing up and reading the scriptures. And in fact, this is exactly what Paul commanded Timothy to do. We just miss it. This is first Timothy 413. Devote yourself to the public reading of scripture. (laughs) like pause there, there's a command of the Bible. We should be publicly reading scripture to preaching and to teaching. And this really worked itself into the early church. Early church masses were guided by lectionaries, which were basically schedules of Bible reading that were designed to help the entire early church hear the Bible once every single year, read to them out loud. Now, we don't do this practice anymore, and there's probably some things that are lost from it, but that was back when the church was existing inside of a primarily oral culture.
0: But let's go back to something we said earlier, and that is just because you're not in a literate culture doesn't mean that we are currently in an oral culture. And as you have heard Patrick lay out kind of what are the characteristics of an oral culture, you probably realize that that's not us, right? We don't have these great memories. We don't memorize inside of communities. We don't have the public reading of scripture. I mean, to be honest, when I go to something and they read to me, I get frustrated. I'm like, well, stop reading this to me. I could read this on my own. I want to hear maybe preaching or, you know, maybe Psalms of Confession, that kind of thing. But I wouldn't want somebody just to read to me for a long period of time, because I can just read that on my own time whenever I want to. So if we're not a literate culture and we're not a oral culture, then where do we fall?
1: I think that's a really interesting question that maybe we don't have an answer to. And to kind of move us forward, we need to look at another distinction. And Keith's laughing at me right now because this is just so private school, isn't it? But it's really helpful, I promise it is. When you're living inside of a literate culture, and our culture is literate in the sense that most people can read, okay? So at least that much is a fact. You will find that people will often be divided into one of two groups, what we're just gonna call
0: book people and non-book people. So people are able to read, but that's not the primary way they're getting content anymore, but we're not an oral culture, so we haven't sharpened our memory and sharpened our processes to learn information that way. So now you're saying, okay, yes, we can read, but we don't read much anymore, at least not as what we used to. So now we have these two groups, the book people and the non-book people. Exactly. And again, people in both these
1: groups probably are able to read, but book people are people who are primarily doing their learning and content consumption through reading, whereas non-book people are people who
0: aren't doing that. They're getting it how through...
1: Well, we're going to get into that. I've kind okay. of got a compare and contrast chart. And just for some reference, I'm taking some of this from a number of different books, but probably the most well-known one is Ruby Payne's book, A Framework for Understanding Poverty. But I'm also drawing this from a book by Tim Chester called Unreach. There's a few other places. So let me compare and contrast for you book versus non-book people, okay? So I'm going to start. The first one will always be book. The second one will always be non-book, okay? So book people own many books, digital or physical. Non-book people own few books. Book people prefer reading words, non-book people prefer listening to words. Book people learn alone. So it's kind of your point of, you know, hey, can't I go read that on my own? Yes. Non-book people learn in groups. Book people take learning seriously. Non-book people like a laugh and levity. Book people think in words. Non-book people think in pictures. For book people, learning is structured. For non-book people, learning is informal. It's done by doing, by personal experience, by unplanned conversations. For book people... They like learning from experts, and non-book people like learning from one another. For book people, learning is dispassionate, right? It's unemotional. For non-book people, learning is emotional. It's engaging and memorable. For book people, they like speaking in a formal register. For non-book people, they speak in a casual register. Book people have large vocabularies. Non-book people have vocabularies usually ranging between four to 800 words. Last one. This is my favorite one, Keith. Book people like complex syntax. <laughs> in other words, they like sentences that are complex, and non-book people like incomplete syntax. We're going to notice here in just a second that we have the exact same problem that we had earlier, that non-book culture doesn't seem to describe everything that we're experiencing in our current cultural moment, okay? And so Tim Chester, in his book, he writes
0: about having ministry or doing ministry to non-book well, people. Well, he non Non-book people aren't dumb. No. Right? I mean, non book people are very smart, but it seems like non book people might be more someone like an engineer they think in a way differently than I do. Because when you went through that list, I thought, well, I'm almost comically a book person, mm-hmm. but there are a lot of weaknesses that I have. You would never want me to fix anything for you. You'd never <laughs> want me to figure out a science problem for you. We'd still be like in an horse and buggies if it was up to me and people like me who think like me. So is it just a different kind of intelligence that separates these Are they different habits? Part of it is certainly cultural. So historically, now this
1: is less the case today, but where this data was taken from, which was a lot of it gathered in the early 2000s. So we're still kind of in the pre-digital era, as wild as that sound. At that time, this had to do with socioeconomics. So non-book people tended to come from blue-collar and below socioeconomic brackets. That was their background. Yeah,
0: I don't think that's true anymore. I don't think it's true either. I think this non-book list describes a lot of smart people that I'm friends with today.
1: Yeah, and you have to imagine how this changes your ministry context. And this is why Tim Chester, the guy I mentioned earlier, he wrote a book called Unreached, and part of it was about how do you reach non-book people. And he was asking that question because at the time, most Christian ministries were designed for book people. <laughs> they were designed for people like you and me, and so they failed to reach, you know, he talks about, for example, leading Bible studies for ex-cons or people who were on parole, and the challenge that they faced sitting in a room where they were expected to read the Bible out loud. It made them nervous. It made them scared. The challenge they faced when they were asked to kind of analytically dissect or interpret a passage rather than just uh, riff off it and say, well, this is how it connects to my experience. So his concern was we need to have ministry that is contextualized to non-book people.
0: Well, even if I had a friend or someone I knew through church or I wanted to help grow in some way, my go-to is, here, read this. Read this book, read these chapters, and then let's discuss it. But what I've found over the last several years is that most people aren't going to do that. They might eat lunch with me, but they won't have read what we're supposed (laughs) to read to discuss. Or if they did read it, they didn't comprehend it the way I wanted them to. And so I have to be a lot more careful about how am I going to help these people grow in their faith? I can't do my go-to the way I like to learn and just give them something to read.
1: And I think that's challenging for book people like you and I, because if you come from a family that was a book family, and my family was for sure a book family. My parents have a huge vocabulary. I mean, I was constantly learning words. They were Constantly reading books. That was a norm inside of my family. I took it to be a norm inside of every family.
0: Was that your family? Uh, Not as much as you're making it sound like, no. Wow, your family was for sure a book family. That much I'm positive about. They're working in government. <laughs> I don't know. They were book people. They were they were like newspaper people. I don't know if that counts. Well, I think that would count. Like, if how are you counts? doing your learning? How I mean, are you consuming reading the content. newspapers or reading magazines? I mean, and not that they didn't read books, but I didn't grow up in a home where everybody's sitting around reading books. After well, dinner. I should
1: say that my mom <laughs> was a big book reader. My dad, you know, he was a principal, was working full time. Now I know he read a good amount, but he wasn't necessarily reading books. But how he consumed information was via reading. Okay, sure. Yeah. Does that make sense? Well,
0: I don't know what other choices you have. <laughs> I mean, before audio books or before podcasts
1: or before— Well, you get together with a group and you start talking about— it. I mean, that's how non-book— I mean, non-book people still can learn. They're just learning <laughs>
0: in a different format, which is really challenging. And one of the really? challenges— Well, you're kind of hitting on this. It's like, like this Men are from Mars, women are from Venus. And I feel like I'm having one of those moments, that book, where it's just like this parallel universe that exists out there that I know people in, and I like them, and I respect them, and I've learned a lot from them, but I don't understand them.
1: Well, and that's kind of the point is that it's easy for book people like us to you already said this assume on the one hand an intelligence issue like the reason why you're not reading books is because you're not intelligent now that's factually wrong yeah you have people with lower IQs who are book people and people with higher IQs who aren't book people. We also might think it's an issue of work ethic. Oh, you just can't, you know, get the work ethic to pick up the book and discipline yourself and read it. And again, that's not the case. Some of these people on both sides are lazy and some are very hardworking. The reality is that if you're a book person, it's probably because you came from a bookish home, a bookish culture. I really like this quote from Tim Chester, where he kind of warns about some of these differences and the bad assumptions that can come. He writes this. He says, first, people used to operating in the casual Register. So these are people who use very informal Slang. conversational language. So yeah. So that mm-hmm. would be non-book people. People used to operating in the casual register can appear uninformed to those comfortable with the formal register because they don't come straight to the point. For students who have no access to formal register, educators become frustrated with the tendency of these students to meander almost endlessly through a topic. It is simply the manner in which information is organized in the casual register. Secondly, it can appear as if people operating in the casual register don't have an opinion. Asked what they think, they may not provide a direct answer. If this is not recognized, then they may quickly become disenfranchised from church life, or it may be assumed that they don't have a leadership ability. But we want to operate with the principle of... He says, imbalanced mutual adaptation. In other words, we need to adapt to each other, but book people, because they tend to be in charge, need to adapt a little bit more than non-book people. The urban poor may need to adapt as they move into leadership, but other people also need to adapt by recognizing their patterns of discourse. So all of this to say, we started with literate cultures, which we're not. People can read, but we're not learning via reading, versus oral cultures, which we're also not. We're not using memorization techniques. We're not learning in large public reading settings. And then we may say, well, what about book versus non-book? And we, again, can say we're probably not a bookish culture anymore. People are reading far fewer books. And there's aspects of the non-book that seem like it's very similar to our culture, but there's parts that also seem to be a little bit different, which leads to the question of where are we at right now?
0: So I think we're saying we're somewhere in between all these cultures or we're in some new frontier. That it's like we, we can't, don't know what we are. We, yeah, we can't quite put our finger on it, but somehow it's oral, but in a digital way, or it's been very influenced by our digital moment. And there's a guy named Brad East who teaches at Abilene Christian University, I think that's in Texas. And he's been writing a little bit about what he's seeing in his classes, specifically within Gen Z, about how they interact with information, especially with books. And he's been having conversations with other professors who are teaching, as well as high school teachers and pastors of student ministries, saying, what are you guys seeing? He put out some stuff on Twitter asking, what are people reading in this age group anymore? And I I remember one thing he said is that that like millennials, they grew up reading Harry Potter, but Gen Z doesn't read Harry Potter, right? Gen Z reads like Hunger Games or those Percy Jackson novels, which fits with my kids who are all kind of that upper end of Gen Z. Those are definitely the things that he was reading. But when you were working in college ministry, Patrick, were you seeing that the students then weren't reading as much or reading in a different kind of way?
1: Yeah, I mean, I was in college ministry kind of during the transition to the school social media era. And so I would say that, I mean, amongst my peers, I was probably leaned on the more bookish end of the bunch, but there was still a good number of people who would read books. For example, if we did book discussions, that kind of thing. But what I've discovered, this is talking to my friend who's been doing college ministry now for 15 years. So, I mean, he's seen this transition happen. He would be the first to say that Gen Z is reading significantly less than what people read 15 years ago, even. He just gave an example. He tries to do these book discussions because he wants people to read and he gets said hardly, anyone shows up, but by far, the number one discussion he ever had was a discussion of John Mark Comer's Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And only 12 people out of a 400-person ministry, only 12 people showed up for this. And when they showed up, the vast majority hadn't read a page of the book, (laughs) and a handful had read maybe to chapter two.
0: Well, that's the reason I don't do books in my small group or th- discussions like that anymore is because I know that's going to happen. And there's nothing more frustrating than showing up at a book discussion that you're supposed to lead and people haven't read the book. I just want to <laughs> punch them all in the face.
1: <laughs> well, don't do that. You-, you realize this is how you and I first met. Well, not, that's it.
0: not that you didn't read the book, though.
1: No, I read the book. This is how. This it's is how, true. This what, is it. What
0: was it? We had this book called It was, it was a book John, by Owen. John Owen on the mortification of uh-huh. sin. Is that the
1: one? Yeah, I was in college and I was trying to figure out a way to get to know my pastor, which was you at the time. And I don't know if you suggested or someone said like, "Well, just suggest you read a Puritan book with them."
0: <laughs> well, I invited a bunch of people. I thought, uh-huh. right? And I think you and I talked, and you said, "I'll get the people together." Oh, and you okay, because I um, remember sitting yeah. at Flat Branches restaurant Ranch, yeah. and sitting around a table, uh, people are eating lunch or whatever, and we were just discussing mortification of sin. Yeah. And I forgot about that, but you're right. But, I mean, that illustrates the point. I might have been the only college student there. I don't
1: remember anymore. But everybody at that table had read the book, and we were discussing it. And it was not, you know, for a modern reader, necessarily an easy read. I mean, it was written hundreds of years ago. It was challenging. But that was a formative experience for me. Now, here's what I want to say with Gen Z. It's not that they aren't learning. It's not that they aren't consuming information. They are doing it, and they might be doing it at higher rates than even my own generation did. They're just doing it in a different manner. They're consuming content via Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts. That's how they're consuming information. In other words, it's definitely not a literate culture. People are not readers. They're not book people, but it's also not entirely an oral culture, right? This is all being mediated to you digitally. You are learning through your ears, but it's not in a setting with other people. You're still doing it by
0: yourself. So I would think that has to have some sort of impact. In other words, the way we take information, the medium we take it in, consume it, affects us, and it affects the information, right? So I think of that whole argument that Neil Postman talks about, about when the news went from being something you read to something you watched. It changed what news became. It became more like infotainment because people had to look good on the set in order to be able to read the news. And stories became shorter to fit into the 30-minute times leg. And it, the whole, if it bleeds, it leads. That whole thing changed the way we consume news that just was different. And I think probably worse than when you, people read about it in newspapers. So So is this the same thing that's happening right now as we move from book to non-book culture that people consume information through digital means, TikTok, Instagram, all the things you already said, that that it's going to shape information and change what we take in?
1: I think this kind of goes back to Marshall McLuhan's old adage, the medium is the message. Yeah. The way in which we're intaking information is not separate from the information itself. So I want to analyze that, but I think we can almost start with ourselves and say, well, how has my intake of digital (laughs) information changed how I'm consuming? And I mean, speaking for myself, I know that I'm much more distracted today. I do remember
0: times in my life where I felt like I could sit down for two hours and just read a book. Oh, dude, I am so glad you said that because I thought I was the only one. I cannot maintain a disciplined level of attention near what I could five or seven years ago. I'm embarrassed. I'm going to add to the embarrassment. If I want to give my focus to
1: a book, I have found I almost have to be multitasking. You're like an addict. By which I mean, (laughs) it's like, if it's an audiobook, which is also not quite literacy, right? I'm now listening. I need to be doing chores and folding laundry. If I just tried to sit down and listen to it, I'm distracted. Or if it's on my Kindle, I want to be walking. I want to be moving my body, doing something else, and that helps me keep my focus. If I just sit in a chair and try to read, I literally have to take my phone to a different room and set it somewhere and turn off all my notifications, or else I've got max 10 minutes before something distracts me. That is different.
0: Yeah, I am just so tempted, I guess we all are, I just don't want to be where everybody else is, but to pick up my phone and for no reason and just to glance at it, And, you know, people have shown through these studies, I don't know if I quite believe them all, but it takes a while. Once you get out of a book and you look at your phone, even if it's for five seconds, it takes a while to re-engage your brain. It's just not a healthy way to consume information. But I've noticed that my attention span has been decreasing significantly. (laughs) And I think it's honestly, it's really bad for me.
1: Yeah, you're right. I've seen things that range from 9 to 20 minutes to re-engage your mind in a topic. So when people say I can multitask from this thing to that thing, what they're actually doing is kind of half-braining their way through their life. Okay,
0: but now if we're going to talk about multitasking, I don't know if I agree. Let's say you're walking on a trail and you're listening to audiobook. I don't consider that multitasking. I consider multitasking trying to have my mind in two spaces at one time. Yeah, that's fair. I
1: guess my point in saying that is I need to have my body physically moving and agitated. You're a kinesthetic learner. (laughs) No, but I've not always been that way. My point is that something changed. I used to just be able to sit down for hours and read a book at a desk without distraction and without much difficulty. And I find that much more challenging. Now, here's the deal. We are still readers. We are still consuming a lot of our information from books. So let's change it and talk to the person who's consuming most of their content from TikTok, from Instagram, from YouTube. Well, in those cases, the medium is the message. On things like TikTok and Instagram, you are watching, first of all, very short videos, like at a max three minutes, but for the most part under 60 seconds. Well, that means that you're going to have a preference away from long-form discursive logic, where a case is being built and it's being explained, to very short-form, parceled out forms of information, where you're just grabbing bits and pieces from all these places, but there's no organizational structure that brings the learning and to a single
0: whole. Here's a less kind way of saying it. You're getting information that is superficial. Yeah. Right? You're just skimming the surface and getting something that's sexy, fun, noticeable, stands out, but you're not understanding what lies beneath that. And so you can't evaluate is this true or not. Well,
1: and then we also have to realize there's some people who are going to consume longer form digital content. So you can think about longer YouTube videos. You can think about longer podcasts.
0: Totally different. Yeah. So
1: that is different, right? But even an hour long podcast on a topic is different than reading a book because a book is one voice. Again, it's usually very logical and discursive. So it's taking you through an argument if it's nonfiction, whereas a podcast tends to be what we're doing. It's more conversational. There's probably less information that someone will get in a podcast like this and they would get from just sitting down and reading a book for an hour on the topics that we're discussing. I hope you'll partner with us in this gospel-centered ministry to glorify Jesus by fighting tribalism in our churches, in our communities, and in our families.
0: So then why do you listen to podcasts instead of books, because I listen to a bunch of both. And there's something about podcasts that are more immediate, that are more relaxed, that don't take as much focus and energy from me if you said what are some books that you really like this year well i make a list of those i know what those are and i can tell you how they affected me even if i can't tell you every detail in them but the podcast they kind of come and go i churn through them i'll remember a few bits and pieces but not as much
1: we don't know what to call this new era that we're living in but i think what you just described is the way in which even bookish people like ourselves in the digital era start to sound like non-book people And what I mean is, what do non-book people want? They want, I'll just read from my chart, they like a laugh and levity. So that's part of what you're saying. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> there's a conversation, there's laughter, they learn in groups and learn from other people. And so while they're not physically present in a group, there's something about hearing a conversation between two people that kind of recreates a group learning setting. They like information and learning to be informal. A conversation is much more informal. It's not highly structured. They like learning to be emotionally engaging and memorable. So we're seeing that a podcast feeds a lot of the non-bookish side.
0: So. Do Do you think that that contributes to our declining attention span? When I say declining attention span, I mean the inability to stay focused and engaged on a serious topic for long periods of time.
1: I don't know if it affects attention span as much as showing a preference for a certain style of learning. And I don't know if that's attention span or not. It's just when I'm reading a book that isn't highly entertaining, maybe it takes less of my attention or grabs less of my attention because it's not fitting into this category that I'm learning to prefer digitally.
0: Well, what I like about this, I don't even know if I can quite say it right, but the digital culture that we live in affects all of us. Even people who are not prone to like it or prone to want to like it, we're still affected by it. It's the water we swim in. We cannot help but be changed by it. When you're looking at
1: information online, especially on YouTube, TikTok, Instagram might be a little less the case with podcasts. It is algorithmically mediated. In other words, the stuff that I'm getting, I'm going down a track of learning. It might be learning in 60 second bursts from TikTok or 60 second bursts from Instagram or longer bursts from YouTube. But what comes next? What's recommended to me by the algorithm isn't really determined by me. It's determined by my viewing behaviors. And so whereas when you're a bookish person, how do you find new books to read? Well, I found it in two ways. One, I would talk to other bookish people and say, hey, what are you reading? What should I read next? Two, when I was reading a book, I would look at the footnotes. I'd say, oh, everybody's referring to this same book by the same author. In other words, books became doorways and invitations into reading deeper, into reading new authors. And instead, online, the algorithm, it is introducing us to new people, but it's a very different format. It's a very different way of learning. One last thought before we move on about how digital changes us. It's also highly self-expressive. In other words, when I'm on TikTok and I'm watching something I don't want to watch, what do I do? Swipe up. Right. When I'm on YouTube and a video doesn't grab my attention in the first 60 seconds, what do I do? Click the next thing on the recommender algorithm. And so... My learning, it's not only not long form, it's also very, very shaped to fit my personal interest and my own personal taste in terms of entertainment. I'm not being taken on a structured journey of learning. I'm being taken on a self-expressive, algorithmic, short-term kind of learning journey.
0: Well, it takes me to this coronation of King Charles that happened just a few days ago. And most people didn't understand what was happening and how rooted that ceremony was in the Old Testament. And the scriptures, but it was. And so I think, you know, back when the last one was done 70 years ago, when his mother, Queen Elizabeth, was coronated, everybody got the Old Testament illusions because people were reading the same stuff. And now people aren't reading the same thing. So it just kind of went completely over their head, all the scriptural roots. So I guess my point is that when people are reading classics, We share a common language, a common vocabulary, a common worldview. But in the self-expressive world where we're all just finding something that scratches whatever itch we have at the current moment, we become more fragmented and we don't share that cultural worldview. We don't share that space together. And therefore, we use different language. We think in different ways. And I think it's part of what's contributing to the fracturing of our society.
1: Well, I think it's a good segue into a related topic, which is we haven't just lost literacy in terms of how much we read. We're increasingly a non-book culture. We've also lost biblical literacy. Even today's biggest Bible nerd, (laughs) maybe not a PhD in New Testament or something like that, but like a big-time Bible nerd, would struggle to hear all of the scriptural references in a Frederick Douglass speech from the 1800s, whereas a teenager— from that era, might pick up every single one. That's how biblically illiterate we've become. So we not only are non-readers, we're also biblically illiterate.
0: So go back to Brad East, the professor at the Abilene Christian, and he's asking, who are people, say, 15 to 25, serious devoted Christians, who are they reading? And he's saying that the authors that they're coming up with are probably on the more practical side of Christian living. They're not really deep. They're not theological. They're not biblical. We've lost this desire to go deep into our faith, to reading theological works that really give us a depth and a maturity and solid roots. And that comes back then to hurt us later and hurt the faith and hurt the church because people don't know how to live out their Christian faith in anything but the most superficial way.
1: I think it's no shocker that if we have a double literacy problem, we struggle because we aren't reading long-form discursive books, and we also struggle because we're biblically literate, no shocker that we're seeing a decline in theological, philosophical, and biblical rigor. It's not surprising at all. I mean, today, if you're talking to a Gen Zer or a millennial who really knows a lot about the Bible, I would put high odds that if they know a lot about the Bible, it probably came from watching The Bible Project, more likely, than they've read, you know, the works of N.T. Wright. Actually, that's impossible. I don't think anyone can read everything (laughs) that N.T. Wright has written too much stuff there.
0: But you're saying that even the people who are serious about their faith and who have a fairly good grasp of the Bible, they're not getting it primarily from books. They're getting it from other ways. But The Bible Project, I mean, I think we both really like Love that it. podcast. We've we had Tim Mackey on the show. It's pretty substantive. So is this bad? That's what I can't figure out. Is And maybe I'm just trying to put good and bad labels you know, on something that really you can't do right now.
1: What I would rather say is, well, this simply is what it is, and there are going to be consequences. When you're in a non-book culture, one of the consequences, like I just said, is a lack of theological and biblical rigor, and we've seen this, by the way, right here in our own church. I mean, we're a Presbyterian church, and I don't know... Are we? (laughs) I don't know if I'm allowed to say this on the air, but I'm going to say it anyways. We often have people come from other denominations, they transfer into ours, like the PCA, there's other Presbyterian denominations, and when they come in, they have to take examinations to basically make sure that they're theologically orthodox. And part of that is they stand in front of the whole Presbytery, so all the pastors, all the elders, and they are asked questions. Those questions can be on their views, but over the last three years, I've seen a lot of transfer exams, and I have seen the vast majority of the people doing these transfer exams state theological heresies, (laughs) Trinitarian heresies, to be really precise. Now, When they were corrected, they're like, oh, yeah, that is what I believe. I got that wrong. I'm sorry. And so, you know, I understand. But I'm just trying to highlight there are consequences to a lack of theological and biblical rigor. And it runs from the top down, from Christian leadership all the way down to everyday Christians. And I don't think it's inconsequential, so I guess maybe I am now kind of saying it's bad.
0: But Tim Mackey, he's never written a book to my knowledge, right? So he's a very bright guy who's put a lot of work in studying the Bible, has a PhD in Old Testament or something like that from University of Wisconsin, a very reputable school in that area. He's put all of his energy into these podcasts and videos and classes that you can do online, that kind of stuff. So I'm wondering, is that an interesting way of adapting to the new culture we're in, and he and his whole ministry there have been on the front edge of stepping into a new arena, a new time, and making this dense information understandable to a new generation? Or is it caving in to this bad thing that, you know, we're all kind of becoming dumber and more superficial because he hasn't written books, and instead he's only done these podcasts and videos and et cetera, et cetera?
1: I actually really like this question. It's a far better question than the good-bad question, but it's just dealing with the reality on the ground. I do not want to be a get-off-my-lawn curmudgeon who sits here and says, well, I want to be a bookish person, and if you aren't, you're wrong. I do not have control over where our culture is. I simply have to live in it, and I don't think there's much Christians can do to change the fact that we're becoming a different kind of culture. We still don't have a name for what kind of culture we are, and that's the right question. How do we respond? And I agree. I think Tim Mackey might be the premier example of what It looks like to contextualize our knowledge and our learning in a self-expressive, algorithmic, digitally mediated era of learning. I know of no better example, in fact. Because, like, their videos
0: make it kind of fun, you know, more than the podcast. It's infotainment, but it's very substantive. They're well-crafted. So, there's a degree of excellence and beauty to them that attract you. But it's still, you know, something that you're cramming in the book of John in six minutes or something. So I think you could argue it either way, but I'm a big fan.
1: You know, if you go to their website, Tim Mackey will always point you to who he read. Now, I don't know how many people actually get onto the website. I doubt it's very many. I do. I've been introduced to all kinds of new authors and thinkers by going down that route with him. but that's not the norm, and you're right. It's not as deep and substantive as reading a book. However, I think churches and Christians have to take seriously the challenge we have. This goes back to Tim Chester's book when he was talking about doing ministry to those in poverty who are from non-book environments who are less literate than bookish people. He didn't say, well, gosh, we gotta... Get them more literate, and we've got to turn them all into book people. Instead, he asked the question how do we contextualize the message for people in that context? We are in the exact same circumstance. We have to create content that reaches people where they're at. Now, that said, if you are a content creator, if you are a pastor, a Christian leader, a small group leader, podcaster, I guess, whatever you're doing, if that's you, you don't get that choice. Because if you want to be a creator, you need to be substantive. One of the most annoying things to me right now is hearing about TikTok evangelists and, oh, I'm reaching millions of people with the message and I go watch their stuff and it's this nothing fresh, there's nothing new, there's nothing original, it's the exact same thing over and over and over again. And I think you just need to read one good C.S. Lewis book and you would be not just two times more interesting, you would actually be giving people something of substance that they could chew on instead of repeating yourself over and over and over again. So where I am going with this is saying, if you are in Christian leadership or you are creating content, I think you have a responsibility to become a reader because that is where the tools exist.
0: Or if you want to be a leader, like if you aspire to be a small group leader, if you aspire to be maybe an elder in your church or to teach classes, if you want to be a mentor of other people, the path to that is a path through books. Now, maybe it won't be in 30, 40 years. Maybe there'll be something else figured out. But where we are today, that's the path forward because you need to be able to go more than just a question or two deep. You can't remain on the surface.
1: Well, you know, I would even push back I think it is what it will be in 30 to 40 years Christians have always been you have no idea well okay but Just looking throughout history, we are a bookish religion. Christian leaders have always historically been readers, even when it was incredibly difficult.
0: Well, if we go in the past, what Christians would do, like missionaries, when they'd get to a new place, is they'd teach everybody to read. Yeah, Because they knew that until people could read, they wouldn't be able to engage with the Bible, and they wouldn't really be able to engage in the faith in any kind of in-depth way. So Christians were the people of the book in a way that other religions, not as much. We don't know what kind of culture we are. We've
1: explored that. We know it's not literary. We know it's not oral. We know we're not bookish or non-bookish. We know it's digital, algorithmic, self-expressive, mediated by all this. Okay, so we get that that's a case, right? And what we just said, I think is really helpful, which is we have a calling to contextualize the gospel in our context. And that means we need more Tim Mackeys. But on the other hand, If we want to be Christians who are effectively doing ministry and have things of value to share, we need to become readers. So let's end the podcast there, because we do get lots of questions from people asking us, how do you read so much? What are you reading? Why are you reading? And it's something we're both passionate about is helping non-readers become readers. So, Keith, let's get into that.
0: When I get to talk to people about reading, what I always start with is the why I read, because that's what drives everything. And one of the reasons that I read is that allows me to be mentored by other people. I find a lot of adults who say, I want a mentor, but nobody wants to do the mentoring, right? Everybody wants a mentor. Everybody's looking for their father or whatever, right? And so the only way I know to do that is through books. So what I'll tell them is, Or they'll ask me who mentors you. And like, well, you've got to kind of figure that out on your own, but who mentors me are the set of authors that I engage in a conversation with and I learn from their life and I learn some of the best stuff that they've ever learned, but I learn it through books. And what's one of the reasons I love to read biographies. I think I like them more than you do, right? You're not a big biography person, but I look at somebody's biography as maybe the life lessons that they learned over their 50, 60, 80 years, whatever it was. And I get to learn all that and then I can start applying it to my life now So there just seems to be this huge need that people have to have input in their life. And I look to books to be one of the ways that I get that input.
1: No one changed the world by watching a TV or their family or their neighborhood, their church, their city. Why? Well, I think it's because when you read, you have something to give someone else. You have a deeper understanding of the human condition. You have a deeper understanding of the human soul and our walk with Jesus. You have a deeper understanding of A variety of topics, history, sociology, science. You have something to offer others because you've made yourself into a however small, a fount of wisdom to others through your reading.
0: Yeah. And so let's leave the why and just kind of go to the what. Like what should I read? And here I think you should follow your interest, at least largely. Like I try to read a bunch of different kinds of stuff. So fiction, history, biography, nonfiction, Christian living, Christian theology. It helps me from getting stuck in some sort of rut. And if you looked at my list of books that I keep that I read, you go, gosh, that's all over the map. And I would encourage you to follow your interests. Don't think that you only have to read one kind of book. And I wouldn't even limit it to books. I mean, you could read magazines and newspapers. Maybe you find one newspaper that you read fairly frequently, maybe several times a week. And then one magazine you read, say, once a week or once a month. Because my guess is you won't like every article in every edition of that magazine or that newspaper, but you're going to find little nuggets in there that will help you. Another thing is I think that the tendency is to read things that we can immediately grasp. But when you're looking for a book to read, what I would say is if you get 75% of it, that's great. So some books should be easy, just fun, beach reads, but some books should really challenge you. And there's going to be words you don't know, which, by the way, is one reason I love the Kindle, is because you just put your thumb on that word and you can get a definition for it. You don't have to go find some you know, Webster's dictionary <laughs> off of your shelf downstairs, that kind of thing. But I think some people go, oh, I don't know everything. I'm not grasping it all. And therefore, this is a waste of my time. No, like you said, memory is a muscle earlier. Well, just like memory is a muscle, so is reading comprehension. And the only way to get stronger and better at it is to read things that really challenge you and stretch you.
1: Yeah, I'm going to give two pieces of apparently contradictory ideas. The first one is this. Try reading people you disagree with. Part of this goes back to the why. I love having my ideas challenged because the more my ideas are challenged, either they strengthen or I realize I was wrong and I learned something new. I just love learning new things, so why not challenge my ideas? But read things that you don't agree with. Find authors who you disagree with, who you really like reading and try to read a lot of their stuff. You'll learn something in the process. You may become a better evangelist because you're reading books by people who are representing a different worldview. You might have a deeper, richer understanding of a topic because you've considered the arguments that are against your arguments on the flip side of that find people you agree with and maybe pick one or two and try to read through their whole canon everything that they've written I mean, obviously this requires people who've written a lot of books but you can start with easier authors you know you can pick up someone like tim keller you know you can go a little more challenging and pick up a c.s lewis but find an author who you connect with and try to read through their whole list of works try to understand the depths of their thinking i, I don't know for me that's been an encouraging challenge
0: All right, let's go to how do we read. And I said earlier that I don't think all books should be read in the same way. Here's what I mean by that is that there are some books that you can read right before you go to bed and there are other books you need to read kind of at a desk and focused with a pen in your hand. There are some books that I want to take in the main ideas of and that's the books that I usually listen to on Audible. And there are other books that I feel like no, I really want to understand at a deeper level and those are the books that I would read on Kindle. And then there are some books that I go, I'm going to teach through this and I'm going to come back and refer to this often. So those are the books that I would read a hard copy of. And some books you can read quickly because you're just trying to get the gist. And some books you wanna go slow and reread a paragraph if you didn't quite fully get it. So I don't think every book should be read in the same way. I think when you try to read every book as if your life depends on it, it just becomes too big of a burden. You move too slow and you don't enjoy the process as much. Sometimes when you read too slowly,
1: you miss the point because you haven't connected sentences and ideas with each other because you spent too long getting there. When you think about reading, you can think, of like just said, about in-depth reading in various levels. One thing I like to do if I'm trying to read rather quickly, which is an okay thing to do, if I'm reading in a topic area I understand, I'll get a hard copy of it, and I will go through, and in a chapter, I'll read every subheading, I'll read every first sentence of every paragraph, and every last sentence, and I'll go back to the top, and I'll kind of skim through it. And I found that that's a great way for me to get a good amount of information without spending a lot of time reading through a book and you know i'm probably not counting that in my hundred books read or whatever but like that's still a good important way that you can read and get a lot of content
0: I think book discussions are obviously well-known, super popular book clubs or whatever. But I just want to push that. If you're going to read a book, why don't you grab a friend, a family member, somebody in your small group, somebody that listens to Truth Over Tribe? I don't care. And maybe there's an author that we had on and you thought that'd be interesting. But if you read it with someone else, it's going to help you a ton. First of all, it's going to just give you some accountability. But better than that is it's going to give you somebody to bounce ideas off of. And when you don't quite understand what was said, you can check in with them and maybe Maybe they got it. So reading in community, which takes us back uh, to kind of the oral culture, fighting against that individualism. But reading in community, I think, still has a big payoff.
1: Of course, you actually have to have read the book when you show <laughs> right. up. Or else you can expect a fist in the face from Keith. <laughs> what other idea about how you read? If you simply find it too difficult to read you know on a Kindle or an actual book it is okay to listen to audiobooks I've helped a lot of people start reading simply by getting them hooked onto audiobooks start by picking up an interesting engaging piece of fiction on audio that you want to keep picking up and listening to because you want to know what happens next because part of what I've discovered here is that you just have to build a habit right and if you don't have any habits of reading the first thing you have to do is just start reading something you want to read so that you start developing a habit of reading it regularly and then down the line you can start picking up things that maybe you're slightly less interested in or that are slightly more difficult
0: pedro why don't we send out in our newsletter with this episode just a list of authors that we would recommend both audio kindle christian authors non-christian authors for people at different levels in their reading experience so if you're looking for some stuff we'd be glad to share with you what we're enjoying and it may or may not be your thing so let's go to the last thing when should i read now A lot of my reading is done on the elliptical. (laughs) I've done this for years. I started on a stationary bike, and I trained myself to be able to read books on the stationary bike because your head's not moving. And then I learned how to do the elliptical where my head's not moving, and I can just sit and read and read and read and read. And another place that I like to read is when I'm walking, and that's, of course, audible books. So there are ways that you can—it's not really multitasking because you're not trying to consume two kinds of information at the same time. It's just using your time effectively, I think. So you've got to find time. If your reading all comes down, especially let's say you have a family or whatever, if your reading comes down to you finding an hour a day that is away from kids and away from noise and the hubbub of life, well, (laughs) good good luck. luck. That's never going to happen. So like one thing I would do is when I would pick up my kids from sports when they were younger, is I would always have a book with me because the kids were inevitably late coming out. The coach always kept them late, right? And so that's maybe five minutes of reading, or maybe it's 30 minutes of reading, depending on the night. But wherever I go, wherever I go, I have a book with me and I can just go right into it if circumstances allow. I have young kids, so when people
1: are like, oh, my kids are just too young, I can't get a free moment, I don't buy it because that's my experience and i found time. Now, for me, the primary way I've had to read since having kids has been through audiobooks, but that's because I'm able to do chores and housework and other things, and while I'm doing those, I'll often be listening to an audiobook, not music. And I know some people like listening to music, and I don't listen to much because I spend more time reading. I think my time's better spent. That's just me personally. But that's another great place is inside of your chores, get an audiobook and do it then.
0: And let's be honest, some of this comes down to personality because I don't enjoy watching television. It just, I have 0. <laughs> 0.0 interest in it. It's not like some discipline I have or some spiritual thing in my life. I just don't have interest. I'd much rather read than watch television. And that's just personality. And it sounds like your personality is somewhat similar at least- it I don't hate music. TV. You don't hate TV? <laughs> I, I just hate it. Yeah, no, I don't have that.
1: But I do find other spaces that I wanna read. At the end of the day, this is about priorities. If you wanna be a reading person who has something to offer others, if you wanna be mentored by people from generations past, these are values that you need to take in. If you wanna be an interesting dinner guest who isn't just talking about sports and weather, because who can talk about that anymore? You should be a reader. But maybe above all else, the key here is just becoming a curious person. Become interested in other people. Become interested in other ideas and other ways of thinking. And the more curious you are, the more interesting you will actually become over time, the more well-rounded you'll be. So develop that desire to read. Develop that curiosity.
0: Yeah, look for a newsletter out on this, and we'll try to give you some stuff that we've enjoyed reading and hope it helps you.